Please join me in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. If you've been tracking with our preaching schedule here at Gateway, you'll know that we just concluded our series in Revelation, and that coincided very nicely with the end of the calendar year. And in that last chapter of Revelation, we encountered the, the very last words of the incarnate Jesus when he says, Surely I am coming soon. However, this morning and on this New Year's Day, I'd like to direct our attention to actually the very first words that the incarnate Jesus spoke and that is recorded for us in the scripture. So Matthew chapter 5. It is January 1st, like I said, and New Year's resolutions can often act like mountaintops in people's lives, right? From that elevated perspective, we can see where we have been in years prior, and we can see where we want to go in the year's future. It's always on January 1st that people choose important changes in their life to motivate them, to push them further, and they make resolutions. So without being too picturesque, a little poetic, but I want us to join Jesus on this mountaintop from there, and as we learn from him to resolve going forward in 2023, to truly embrace his kingdom in our hearts and to learn the lessons that he, he has for us. In 2019, uh, a research center based, based in Washington, D.C., conducted a, a study on sermons that were preached across the United States. They pulled over 50,000 sermons to collect data. Many of their findings were helpful. A lot of it was unsurprising. They found that certain denominational groups tended to form their own unique set of vocabulary. It's kind of like their Christian speak, depending on which, which denomination you were a part of. They found that there were certain trends in which scriptures were quoted, Old Testament, New Testament, based on the year where they were in the calendar year. They drew conclusions about the importance of knowing your audience who's out in front of you, their doctrinal familiarity, how much knowledge they have in the Bible, what their attention spans are. And we all need to be very, very careful with this one, but they did uh, come up with the average sermon length in America, okay? As long as you promise not to talk about this after the sermon, we can, I'll tell you what the average ser sermon length is. It's actually 37 minutes. So, yeah, it is, yeah. They, they were calculating some of the, the, the liturgy, the homilies from Catholic churches, and then longer uh, Protestant extemporaneous stuff. Well, there is a lot of diversity within homiletics. But one thing is for sure. This group and many other groups across the internet are unified in answering this question, what is the greatest sermon ever to have been preached? What is the greatest sermon? Almost without exception, the answer is the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' statements in Matthew 5 through 7 really have famously echoed throughout history. Even the secular, the academic worlds, they recognize the value of this sermon, right? It is unrivaled in its impact upon the world. One author said, God's own son delivered this sermon. The greatest preacher who ever lived preached the greatest sermon ever preached. So that's what we're looking at this morning, just the beginning part of this amazing sermon. And this morning, I'd like to invite you to simply allow Christ's opening words to challenge you towards one particular resolution. This is the central and defining resolution to all who belong in his kingdom. It is this. Citizens of Christ's kingdom are marked by humility. To belong to Messiah's kingdom requires, before all else, humility. 
Humility recognizes the enormity of the kingdom requirements. Humility recognizes that you are, in fact, not king, <laughs> that there is a king. It is Jesus. Humility cries for Messiah to come and reign. So I trust that these lessons on humility found in verses 3 and 4 will challenge us as we embrace Christ's kingdom in our hearts. Here's our outline, very simple. We're going to uh, talk about the background to Matthew 5, and then verses 3 and 4, two points. Kingdom humility is dependent, and kingdom humility is repentant. Kingdom humility is dependent, kingdom humility is repent, repentant. Let's go ahead and read Matthew chapter 5. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What has Matthew already said leading up to chapter 5? We're jumping in the middle of his story to glorify this Messiah and his kingdom. Well, you probably know this, partially because we're coming off the Christmas season where we anticipate the coming of this Messiah. But in chapter 1, if you were to go there, you can do that later, you would find the background and the family history of the Messiah. This is the providential preparation for Jesus to come. Chapter 2, we have the arrival of the Messiah. He shows up in real time and space. And before he does, before long, he is already opposed by the ruling classes of this world. Chapter 3 of Matthew is where we find Christ being ordained and commissioned. He's baptized and the Father sends him out to begin his public ministry. And then chapter 4 really is, is that initiation. Christ goes out and he begins preaching, he begins teaching. In fact, Matthew 4, 23 is kind of the touch point for that, uh, that section. It says this, Jesus was going about through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. This was Jesus' ministry. Now we arrive in chapter 5 to Jesus' not healing ministry, but teaching ministry. He begins to open his mouth. And actually, as you read Matthew, you find this pattern continue, where Jesus will do miracles and signs, and then he will teach. And then he'll do some more miracles and signs, and then he'll teach. Signs and miracles leading into teaching, so on and so forth. And there's actually five different sections of these in the book of Matthew, around which it's organized. So if you have a, a words of Jesus in red edition of the Bible, you'll be able to identify these five big blocks of text where Jesus is just teaching. Matthew 5 uh, through 7 is, is the first of those. And you'll see phrases like this, when Jesus had finished teaching, then he goes off and does miracles and signs. Like I said, Matthew 5 through 7 is the longest, the most comprehensive set of teachings in this book. So it really does set the course for Matthew, and it sets the course for the New Testament. I think that's fair. What is the purpose of Jesus teaching and healing and healing and teaching? Well, it's really to reveal one thing about Christ, his authority, his authority. Matthew is emphasizing the authority and the blessing that was upon this Messiah in his ministry. You see, friends, Matthew is presenting Jesus as nothing less than the Messiah, the champion, the ruler, the king from the royal line of David who fulfills the Old Testament story. That is the story of Matthew. As Jesus goes around, he begins laying out the kingdom standard. 
the expectations. And as we get to chapter 5, this is how we know he starts. If you would, just briefly look down at the end of, chap- at the end of verse 3 and then also at the end of verse number 10. Both verses end with, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the bookends of the Beatitudes. So that gives us a clue that part of this section is based on the kingdom of heaven. That gives us a clue that this is what this section is about. So what does Jesus say about the kingdom? The Sermon on the Mount has been characterized as being a good set of moral teachings. It's been characterized as being like cookie, fortune, fortune cookie, wisdom, that kind of thing or even as emotional hallmark, just sentiments. But friends, the Sermon on the Mount is far beyond that. It's far deeper and more profound. These statements point powerfully to a righteousness unattainable without divine help. Righteousness unattainable without divine help. At the core of the Sermon on the Mount, Christ says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will not enter the kingdom. So this was devastating news in some ways for his Jewish audience. What would, what would Jews have thought listening to Christ talk about the kingdom? If you were a faithful Jew, what would be going through your mind? If this really is Messiah, what would you be thinking? I thought of a couple questions. As faithful Jews, they'd be thinking of this. How can I belong to the kingdom? And am I worthy to be a citizen in Messiah's kingdom? They want to know the answers to these questions. What Jesus does is he deals with the Old Testament law, their code, but he heightens the expectations within that code. And in doing so, he brings together the ideas of law and love, of law and love. That is a huge theme of the Sermon on the Mount. Frankly, this is a concept which the people of God through the Old Testament failed to totally grasp. The Sermon on the Mount, for example, speaks often of Jesus not ignoring the law of God, but instead getting to the very heart of it. True love brings life and light to the law, and true law touches and moves the heart. Those things go hand in hand. This is not a new concept, however. Deuteronomy, in fact, which is the second giving of the law, Deuteronomos, actually has the words heart and love the fourth most of all the books in the Bible. So even in this set of laws and, and precepts, God is already focused on the heart of his people and their affection toward him. It's not just these dusty set of mechanical rules. God wants their heart. And this is what Jesus is doing. This rabbi, Jesus, is not just concerned with outward conformity. He actually wants it to go straight to the heart of every person. So it is humility, which is today, will help us respond to love this king with our whole hearts, obey his law with our hands, and trust his perfections with our soul. Let's go into the text here, Matthew chapter 5, and let's look first at the context in verses 1 and 2. Read with me, please. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, So we know from Matthew's account that these words were spoken on top of a mountain. The text says the mountain, but most likely that these were hills that were part of the foothill, uh, the foothills next to Galilee, near the the Sea of Galilee. And in reality, if you know the topography of Israel, it's not so much like the Rocky Mountains out west. It's more like the rolling foothills of the upstate, maybe not even that big. 
And so in reality, Christ is sitting not on the top of this huge peak. He's on a plateau where his words will be able to echo forth and people can hear him easily. So it's more like the Sermon on the Plateau, but that just doesn't have the ring to it, does it? We have to call it the Sermon on the Mount. This was common uh, for many rabbis of the day to, to sit down, to have folks gather around them. From that seated position, they would, they would speak. They would comment on the Old Testament law. Here in the States, in this culture, we have that reversed. You all are seated while I'm standing. Maybe if pastor wants to change that tradition in 2023, he's welcome to do that. But not so in ancient Israel. So no doubt, Christ was surrounded by his disciples and those that were eager to hear about the kingdom, faithful Jews who were curious about this new teaching. What about the relevance today? What can we gain from studying the Sermon on the Mount? Are we in a similar place to those disciples? When Jesus speaks about the kingdom, are we kingdom hopefuls as well? Well, in one sense, anytime the scripture speaks, we must listen, right? We are not in a position to pick and choose what part of the scripture is important to us. Secondly, it is true. We may not be living in the full finalized set of the full finalized expression of Christ's rule and reign that is still future in the millennial kingdom. But folks, today, if you've trusted him, if you've bowed the knee to him through the gospel, his saving power, you have submitted to him as your king. In other words, the king's reign is true in your life. The reign of Christ does exist. And you are incumbent to follow his teaching, as am I, even though the world still might reject him. So there are several commands in this Sermon on the Mount that I actually think are difficult to interpret in light of the millennial kingdom. There's commands that are more appropriate right here today. So we are kingdom hopefuls. We submit to Christ's lordship through the gospel, especially his resurrection. And what Jesus has promised to do someday in the kingdom, he has begun to do in us today. Let's look at our first point. Verse three, kingdom humility is dependent. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed to us often communicates the sense of being fortunate or happy. But this begs the question, fortunate or happy in what extent? What is the source or the basis of this blessing? Most commentators agree that blessing in this context speaks to being approved by God. This is the person who God approves. We could talk about the applause of heaven. This is the description. And to the degree that Jesus' Jewish followers could meet these qualifications, they were blessed. It is God's assessment of somebody that really determines their fitness for the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The term poor here does not actually refer to material or financial things. It also does not refer to emotional tendencies, right? It is not describing any sort of mild-mannered frailty or lack of bravery. It also does not mean that you always go around thinking of yourself as worthless. That would not be true. God has given you his image. There is some worth there. It certainly is not synonymous with unhappiness. So what does poor mean in this context? Um, well, poverty describes the word spirit. It really, in essence, describes one's awareness of his or her own state before God. It recognizes that on our own merits, we have nothing to offer a holy, perfect, excellent God. 
Thus, poverty of spirit depends upon the mercy and grace of God. It doesn't assume that we are qualified. It relies totally on God's grace, knowing that every good thing is from God's hand. Paul's comment in 1 Corinthians 15 is really helpful in this regard. He says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. But I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of Christ within me. Paul is saying, I have nothing to offer God in and of myself. Even the desire to do right comes ultimately from God's good hand. How about Philippians 2? Wonderful commentary on this principle. For it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, in our culture and in many cultures around the world, wealth is regarded as far superior to poverty, right? If you had to pick between the two, obviously you would choose wealth in our human economy. But in God's economy, the fundamental value is recognizing the rebellious quality of our own heart. That's where it all begins. That's where Jesus begins and that's where our growth begins. We are simply beggars who are invited to feast again and again and again on grace. We lean on God's grace. Ask, Jesus later says, and you will receive. Seek and you shall find. Are we in a position to be impoverished in spirit? Are we willing to embrace that truth about ourselves? It's true that we never graduate from the school of grace. In fact, kingdom humility continually depends on God to look for spiritual fruit. This is partially why the Sermon on the Mount is always remarkably relevant to our souls. It's this cycle of spiritual progress that brings us back to our knees. I love what D.A. Carson says, the more I read these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, 7, the more I am drawn to them and shamed by them. Their brilliant light draws me like a moth to the spotlight, but that light is so bright that it sears and burns. No room is left for forms of piety, which are nothing more than veneer and sham. Perfection is demanded. That certainly is true. In comparison to that light, are we not too poor in spirit? Can we recognize that? That's true about ourselves. By way of application, I think that the more genuine fruit that we produce by the power of the Holy Spirit, the greater the temptation is to begin to rely on self-sufficiency. In seasons of great success, and the Lord only knows what he has planned for us in 2023 here at Gateway. But in seasons of wonderful success, it is easy to forget this foundational step. We begin to think that we are great in spirit, that we are strong in spirit, that we are wealthy in spirit. We begin to be self-sufficient. Poverty of spirit is the first hallmark of the kingdom. That's what the citizens look like. That's how humility blossoms and thrives in the kingdom. Verse number four, not only is kingdom humility dependent, kingdom humility is repentant. And I want to explain that a little bit. But let's go ahead and read verse four. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This beatitude is not just next on the list, like a grocery list, get this and then this. It actually flows out of the very first beatitude. For those that are poor in spirit, they will be the ones who repent over their sin. Those who are aware of their own total reliance on God's grace will mourn the sin, which keeps God's grace at bay. These will be people who are characterized by grief over sin. What, what does the word mourn mean? 
Well, the, more, the word mourn carries the connotation of weeping or even crying. It's a strong term. Let me give you some examples for the New Testament. It is later used in Matthew to describe an absent bridegroom and the mourning or grieving attendants. These are people who are distraught. They're destitute. They're sorrowed greatly. It is used by Paul in 1 Corinthians to describe his sorrow over the unbridled sin of Corinth. It's as if Paul looks over Corinth, he sees the debauchery, and his heart is grieved deeply. And also, and this should be relevant to us here at Gateway, it is used in Revelation chapter 18, verse 19. It is where the rebellious kings of the earth grieve and sorrow because of the results of God's judgment on the earth. And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, there's our word, saying, woe, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is laid waste. Can you sense the, the terror or the intensity there? Same word. So in Matthew 5, this isn't just random sorrow. It is connected to the poverty of spirit. Our, realize, our realization of sin keeps us as people of sorrow. Disciples of Jesus are repentant people. The Puritans have really helped me to get a grasp of what this means. Thomas Watson, many of you know his name, explores this doctrine in his work, The Doctrine of Repentance. Here are some principles that he highlights in his work. Repentance is is purgative. By that, it means it's purifying us. It helps us come clean before God. He says, fear not the working of the pill. He says this, when it comes to salvation, either sin must drown in tears, in humble brokenness before Christ, or the soul burn. He says, let it not be said that repentance is difficult. Things that are excellent deserve labor. Isn't that true? Will not a man dig for his gold in the ore, though it makes him sweet? Is it better to go with difficulty to heaven than than with ease to hell? And he finally says, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. The Puritans were repenting people. I would say Christians are repenting people. Certainly, repentance is required in salvation, right? Jesus Christ went around preaching repentance. The Apostle Peter preached repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There's no salvation without it. But this is one of those ideas that must continue on in the life of the Christian. Christians must be careful to repent, to mourn over their sin. This this is humility. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Comfort. It isn't distant, way off in the future comfort. I believe that this is the promise of fellowship that comes with the renewed sense of the presence of God when you confess your sin. To the one who continually repents, fellowship is there. You know, the phrase, preach the gospel to yourself, has become popular for some reason recently. I think it's a good phrase. But I think if it means anything, preach the gospel to yourself means this. Brokenness over indwelling sin, leading to embrace God's mercy found in Christ, will produce more righteousness. And that's a good phrase. If we can preach the gospel to ourselves, we are continually depending on God's mercy to forgive our sin, and we're continually repenting for our our own practice of indwelling strong sin. So in a sense, catch this, the the Christian is perpetually mourning, yes, but he's also perpetually finding comfort and joy as he looks with boldness to the throne of grace 
to find more grace. That is the cycle of the Christian life. We're all familiar with this verse. Many of you are thinking it after I said that. I want to read it for you. Therefore, let us draw with boldness, confidence, to the throne of grace, so that we may receive more mercy and more grace to help in time of need. What a wonderful assurance for us as repenting people. The resolutions that people make today, that people are probably making this year, often elevate themselves as king. What are the common resolution points, right? Fitness, to acquire more wealth, to further your health, to further your investments, any number of things. What Jesus teaches us in his, fir- in his first few words is that resolutions that are part of the kingdom always demand humility and they always give him the kingly crown. These bring about a humility which allows for true righteousness from the heart to blossom and flourish. That's where Christ is going with the Sermon on the Mount. If our righteousness can't exceed that of the Pharisees, we need an alien righteousness. We need Christ's and he's provided that for us. Thank the Lord that he's given us this amazing gift. Once we have that gift of salvation, we can begin through humility to develop true righteousness from the heart not just obeying a set of dusty mechanical principles, but actually loving God from the heart and seeing his law as good, seeing his law as a delight. So kingdom humility is both dependent as we close and it is repentant. Those are based on the gospel and that's not a cliche. They're based on what God has done for us. What's your kingdom humility like today? Is it constantly rehearsing the truth of Jesus Christ, his forgiveness, his offer of cleansing? What an amazing message of hope that we have to preach to the world, to TR, certainly, but also to keep us repenting and depending on him in 2023. It's an amazing, it's an amazing statement by Christ. It's an amazing sermon. And I think the hymn writer, Chris Anderson, encapsulates this well. We just sang about it. With joyful grief, I lift my praise, abhorring all my sin, adoring only him. That's where Christ begins his ministry. That's where we can begin this year. And by God's grace, I trust that we'll do that and experience the blessing of fellowship and favor with him. Let's pray.